Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We are going to be reading from Mark eleven twenty-seven to Mark 12, 12. won't have as many scripture verses as we did last week, but this is a big chunk here. So let's read Mark eleven twenty seven through 12, 12. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that we are here together. We thank you, Lord, for answering prayers that we've prayed. Lord, we thank you today that there's light in this word that we need. And I pray that that light would be opened up into every heart and we would hear what the Spirit is saying. Lord, I pray you would help me to speak and communicate clearly in a way that is helpful according to your truth. Lord, we ask for this today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So here, let's go back to where we were last week or where we've been. Jesus is going back and forth from the Mount of Olives into the city, back and forth. That is what he's doing. He's staying outside of the city, but he every morning he's going back down into the city. So last week we talked about the final issue with the fig tree that was withered up from the roots. And they were uh, on their way in, and that is where we're at here. Jesus has given the lesson on having faith in God, 
and now they're walking back into the into the uh, temple area. And when he comes back in, it was just yesterday that Jesus had overturned the tables. It was just yesterday that Jesus had said, "You have made the house of God a den of robbers and thieves. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations." So that that just happened yesterday. That is the equivalent of a five-year-old with a wiffle ball bat hitting a hornet's nest, which is what I did when I was five with my brother Tim, and it is only by the mercy of God that I am still here today. I don't know how that happened. I truly, I can still remember it. We hit the, hit the hornet's nest because it was really low. And how many of you know hornets are mean and terrifying, and when they start stinging, they don't quit? So we were little tiny kids, and I'm just out there with the really long, skinny wiffle ball, the yellow one. Everybody know what I'm talking about? And we're just whacking it, and the hornets, I can still see swirling over our heads like this, not one single sting. I, honest to goodness, have God kept us from, he saved us from our own stupidity at age five, okay? And God has done that for all of us who knows how many times. Jesus has taken a wiffle ball bat to the hornet's nest of the Pharisees in the temple when he did what he did the day before. We're getting up to the Passover. There's all kinds of people in town. Jesus has humiliated them, and he's been doing this for three and a half years, well, three years. They know what he's been doing. They know there have been miracles. They can't refute that. It's kind of odd, isn't it? They don't even attempt to refute the miracles as if they didn't happen. They want to know who gave you the right to do this. That's the word that they use. By what authority, in Greek the word is, by what right do you have to teach this way, to overturn tables, drive everybody out? What right do you have to be doing this? They clearly don't think he has any right to do it. They're trying to trap him, and they're secretly plotting to kill him. Now, Jesus flips it totally around. He totally unravels their word trap and puts one on them. That, that is what Jesus does. He, and this was a typical way to have a back and forth between religious leaders, was I'll, I'll answer your question with a question. You answer me. Was John the Baptist from heaven, or was it just merely the effort of the flesh in a man? And they knew they were in trouble. The reason they were in trouble is they didn't believe John the Baptist either. Remember John the Baptist out there in the wilderness baptizing people in the River Jordan? And when the Pharisees show up, do you remember what, the, what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees? Who warned you, you brood of vipers, from the wrath that is to come? Who warned you? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. He didn't even accept them showing up because he knew they weren't there for repentance. He knew they were there to judge and to criticize. And here is John the Baptist, who according to Jesus, is the greatest prophet that ever lived. John the Baptist, preparing and making straight the way for the Lord, they rejected his ministry. John the Baptist authenticates Jesus by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. This was the ministry of John the Baptist. So Jesus says, Was it from heaven 
or was it from man? And they are totally trapped because, and you see, they, they get off. I can see these guys in a religious huddle, like, okay, guys, and they come over here away after he asks the question, and they say, okay, so if we say it's from heaven, which is clearly the right answer, then they're going to say, Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you believe it? It will be obvious that we rejected a message from heaven. But if we say that the baptism of John was merely of the flesh and from a man, then the people that are all here watching, this is, this is a spectator sport, what's happening. The people that are watching will be really angry. And you notice what it says, verse 30, uh, 32, shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they held that John really was a prophet. And they knew that. The leaders knew that. So Jesus says, and you can't help but smile, right? Well, I'm not going to tell you what authority I, I'm doing this. What Jesus, what Jesus is really saying is, I know that you know, and you know that I know that you know. And since, since that's where we're at, and you are clearly rejecting a message from heaven in John the Baptist, and even greater in your rejection and sin is rejecting me, I will not dignify you with an answer because everybody here already knows that you know. You're not getting an answer from me. This is from God and you know it and you're rejecting it because you are jealous and because you are filled with hatred. Which is why Jesus, and the reason we read right in the chapter 12, Jesus just turns around and gives a parable. Now normally, the parables that Jesus gives are difficult. Because the disciples are, in all, when you read the Gospels, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, can you tell us what that means about the seeds? The kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. Could you, could you explain exactly what you mean? Every time Jesus gives a parable, the disciples are confused. The other people are confused. They're asking for explanations. Some of them, uh, to be honest, are difficult to preach because uh, you read commentaries, you listen to preachers, and you got 37 different interpretations of the parable. Some of the parables are complex. This parable is not complicated. At all. This, this parable is right in your face in what, in what Jesus is communicating. So I want us to look at that. Um, keep in mind, Jesus is on their turf. Jesus is, if I can use a modern, uh, a modern example, Jesus is is dunking on their turf and looking at the crowd of leaders and going, shh, Jesus is on their turf. And he is challenging them. And the people are with Jesus for now. This is going to change. 
the parable itself is actually not hard to look at. And you, you look at the beginning, beginning of the parable, a man planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. It's, it's really uh, painting a picture of what a first century vineyard would look like. There's a lot of a lot of money that went into this, a lot of work that went into it. They were uh, it was an incredibly important thing to have a vineyard to produce wine because wine was one of the most common drinks that everybody drank. The water wasn't necessarily safe, uh, so there was a lot of uh, a lot of wine because the fermentation, the alcohol kills the bacteria. Uh, by the way, it is wine. There's just all kinds of stuff out there. It's like uh, we're going to turn it into grape juice. Uh, no, there is no evidence of Welch's grape juice. Um, the, when Jesus does his first miracle, the reason that they all flip out is they save the good wine for last because if you drink all the bad wine up front, most people's faculties are not functioning as well as they would. But Jews were against drunkenness because Scripture is against drunkenness. We are against drunkenness. But Alcohol is not a sin in and of itself. I, I throw that out there every once in a while, and people are always like, well, aren't you worried that some alcoholic will take that the wrong way? No! Drunkenness is wrong! Don't do it! Okay? If you drink to the point of, of buzzing and then some, you're, you're wrong and you're committing sin. But if you're drinking wine with dinner, yeah, it's awesome. God gave wine to make glad the hearts of men. That's in the Bible, by the way, Proverbs. Okay, I'm not... It's just... We live, in a, we live in a funny place. We strain out gnats and we swallow camels. That's what we do all the time. Jesus is giving a parable about a vineyard, a vineyard with wine. Wine's incredibly important and it's expensive. And rich people owned vineyards. And this particular uh, parable, Jesus is saying, the owner of the vineyard leaves and hires out tenants to keep watch or to steward over the vineyard that he has made. He wants, while the, the owner of the vineyard, what he wants is he wants to know how the crop is going. Verse 2 says, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. He wanted a wineskin brought back to him so he could sample the wine. How is my vineyard doing? And instead, they beat the servant up. They take him, they beat him, and they send him away empty-handed. So the master sends another servant. This one they strike on the head and treat shamefully. They mock him and beat him. They send another, verse 5, and this guy they kill. There's an escalation. And so with many others, some they beat and some they kill. Now there's, there's a part of you that wants to say, why do you keep sending people to a people that are killing and beating? You're, you're sending messengers, and every time they go, they get beat up or they die. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you do something about it earlier? But he doesn't. Verse 6. He still had one other, a beloved son. Anybody have any idea who Jesus is referencing here? It's not complicated, right? This you're not a spiritual genius to figure this out. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Several of the disciples that were there when they were part of that, 
would have caught that immediately. Jesus has referred to himself throughout his ministry that God is his father. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy because he was making himself equal with God. They know exactly what he's talking about. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Which has got to rank as one of the stupidest things you could possibly think. If the master's son comes and we kill him, then we're, we're entitled to the inheritance. That doesn't make any sense. No, you're entitled to him coming out with a shotgun. But that's what I don't understand how that's how they think, but that's how they think. Well, we'll kill this guy and then the master will be forced to give it to us. Verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will come and destroy the tenants, the caretakers, the people who were supposed to be in charge. Now, Jesus is probably, I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 5, Jesus is probably referencing a well-known portion of Scripture in Isaiah, and the leaders would definitely have known this because Isaiah was such an important prophetic book. I want you to hear what the prophecy of judgment that Isaiah gives to the nation of Israel, what it sounds like. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. In the Hebrew, it means stinking grapes, shriveled up, gross, good-for-nothing grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, stinking grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Now, Isaiah gives an explanation for what this is about. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasing, his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, and for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is a prophetic judgment that Isaiah is giving to the nation of Israel, and what God is saying is, I'm going to come in and tear this vineyard out. I am going to tear down the hedges, which are the hedge of protection that we all pray for, right? Everybody's prayed for a hedge of protection. There's a hedge around the vineyard that is torn down. He's going to tear it all up. And everything in Isaiah is a prophecy of judgment because when God looked to Israel for justice, what he found was bloodshed. This is a, another example of Israel being unfaithful to God, and this is a prophetic judgment on their unfaithfulness. If you've read the Old Testament, this is not news. This is the constant cycle that the nation of Israel was in. 
And so this is another one of those places, and God's using a vineyard as the example of what he's going to do in judgment. He's tearing the vineyard down. Jesus' parable sounds very similar to this. Very, very similar to this. Jesus began his parable by saying, a man built up and built a tower and did all these preparations, and the prophecy in Isaiah is the same thing. But there is a key difference. In Isaiah, the judgment of God is against the nation. Jesus' parable is not against the vineyard. Jesus' parable is against the tenants, the leaders. The leaders are the recipient of the blunt force trauma of this parable. Jesus is addressing the fact that it's the leaders of Israel that have so perverted here in the first century, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been addressing the fact that these leaders are not faithful to God. They are interested in themselves. They are whitewashed sepulchers. They are graves that are beautifully painted, but on the inside are dead men's bones. And they lead people astray. They are the blind leading the blind. All those statements Jesus gives towards the religious leaders, this parable is Jesus saying, you're in trouble, religious leaders. You have abandoned your your pledge and your supposed should-be faithfulness over the people of God, you are guilty. So Jesus is pronouncing judgment. That's where verse 9, he says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Part of the beautiful message of the gospel is that these religious leaders would have and did totally reject, and it happens all throughout the New Testament. Paul fights the same thing. It is the idea that Gentiles can be Christians. It's the idea that it wasn't just for this small, isolated group, but that the gospel was to go into all the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everyone is supposed to hear about the saving work of Christ, and here he's He's not killing the people of the vineyard. They're not receiving the judgment. It's the leaders who were unfaithful. So how did God do this throughout history? He sent prophets. He sent preachers. They were rejected. They were killed. And then ultimately, Jesus is telling them God has sent his son. And they haven't done it yet, but they're going to. They're going to kill him. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? He's quoting Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Gosh, I love that verse. The stone that the builders, the religious leaders, the people who are in charge of the building project, the house of God has a cornerstone, the son of God, the chief cornerstone That is the most important foundational part of a house that is built up on. He is rejected by the builders. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is God in the flesh, and the builders of the house of God 
don't want anything to do with him. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no hope outside of him, and the world is rejecting him. Verse 12, I love what verse 12 says. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. <laughs> you, you think that that's what was happening? I know when I'm being made fun of. I know when I'm being called out. That's, yes, that is, that is exactly what happens. So they left him and went away. On chapter 12 and 13, we're going to see that their going away doesn't mean they've given up. They're plotting on how to get to make this parable come true so that they can be the tenants that murder the son. I want us to look at one other thing in relation to this. Before I, it, Acts chapter 4 is where we're going, but I, I want to say something about what Jesus has done here. Because what Jesus is doing, he is not avoiding controversy. To walk into the temple and to give that parable, to look the religious leaders in the face and say, you've killed the prophets, you've killed all God's messengers, and you're about to kill the son. For him to do that is about as bold as it can possibly be. In the temple, on their turf. Not realizing that it's really his turf. They only think that it's theirs. He is the king of kings. He's the one that gave Moses the prescription for how to build that temple. He is the God of the universe in the flesh. And he's coming with judgment and telling them what's going to happen. The difference is that the difference in the kind of boldness that Jesus has in pronouncing judgment and the type of boldness that we should have is that Jesus is perfect in his execution of something as in your face as this. What I'm saying is, is we live in a world where we need courage and we need boldness. If you and I are going to be Christians in this time, you are going to offend people. You, you are going to offend people. It's just going to happen. Merely saying you're a Christian is going to be offensive. I've watched some stuff on the news with various political people, and you know, words are now violence, and saying something that is different than whatever is popular makes you a hate-filled something. They'll fill in the blank. So if we live in such a world, you can be as sweet and nice, you can have chocolate chip cookies in your purse ready to hand out, and, and it will mean nothing if you use the wrong words. But I want to I caution us in two ways. One, don't shy away from being bold. Jesus here is incredibly bold. Don't shy away from believing the truth 
and acknowledging that you believe it. Don't shy away from sharing the gospel and looking for open doors to do so with your friends and with your family and with your co-workers. I already know. Listen, trust me, I know. Uh, HR departments are really keen on making sure that you say nothing that makes somebody uncomfortable at work. Everybody, right? Now, that's good in a lot of ways, but that also means you can't, you can't talk about Jesus, you can't talk about God, you can't, you can't do anything like that at work. I mean, I see the heads nodding. Everybody knows this is true. And that, that requirement and that mindset pushes by inches all the time so that you wake up in 2022 and realize, oh my gosh, how do we get over here? The wrong response is to say, well, look at what Jesus did. Jesus told them they're a bunch of murderers. There is a distinction between you and Jesus. <laughs> the distinction is he is the perfect righteous judge providing a pronouncement of judgment to a people that have rejected him. But, so, so what I mean is, I'm not, I don't believe that we should be looking for ways, looking for ways to offend the world around us. We should not be looking for ways to get in the people's faces because typically what we're trying to do is prove in that moment that we're right. And, and you might be. In fact, you probably are. But that is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, in a holy, righteous way, is executing judgment against the people who have rejected the chief cornerstone. We are not in that position. However, we are in a position and should be in a position where we are bold about what we believe. So there is a balance that has to be found in the way that we live in 2022. My encouragement is, is if you feel what you feel with emotional anger and you want them to know that you are against the LGBTQ agenda in this office, you need to be careful about the way that you talk. You need to be bold because I will not participate in things that are a violation of my conscience and what I believe that the scripture teaches, but at the same time, I don't, do not want to go out of my way to try to start a fight. I promise, if you are a Christian and you are bold about what you believe, you are going to wind up in a fight. I wish I could tell you that everything from here on out is just peaches and cream and blessing, and, but I'm telling you, in 2022, I don't have to tell you, you know what I mean. The world we live in is hostile towards any idea of exclusivity in Christ. I remember telling one of my bosses that, uh, that had questions about uh, Christianity, I said, here's the deal, Christianity is exclusive. The very nature of believing in Christ says that every other belief system is wrong, and it's not just wrong, it's dead wrong and sending people to hell. So we got to get that clear up front. Christianity says there is no other way except Christ. 
So it's offensive from the word go. It is, it is offensive to a world that demands that everything be neutral gray. And, and it's okay for you because it's okay for you. But it's not okay for them because that's their truth. As if truth is something that you can pick and choose. If your truth is it's dry outside, we stick you outside, guess what? Your truth is ridiculous because you're soaking wet. That's the problem with a subjective idea of what morality and faith should be. And our culture is rife with it. That we can just make up whatever we want. I identify as this, therefore I am. No, you aren't. There is an objective reality. Nobody believes that standing in the middle of the highway when a bus is barreling down. That you can't just say, I identify as transparent and the bus will just go right through me. No, it will not. That bus will kill you. There is objective truth and reality and everybody knows that there is. But if you talk this way, you, you will offend people. Let me boil this down. Be bold in your faith. Don't go out of your way to hurt people's feelings and prove that you're right. Be bold in your faith, but speak the truth in love, Ephesians tells me. But speak the truth. And if you're a, a truth person that's low on love, then hear what I'm saying about love. And if you're a love person that's afraid that the truth is going to jeopardize your loving, then you need to pick up some truth. You, we've got to be balanced biblically, and the biblical balance is the world needs the truth. And they need it in love, not in our anger, but, it, but in love. There's probably going to require some work on that as time goes on, what that looks like. Let me finish with Acts chapter 4. This is an example of the truth in love. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. In chapter 3 of Acts, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. There was a man there. This is the famous silver and gold have I none, but such as I have you by thee. Rise up in the name of Jesus Christ and walk. And he went running and leaping and praising God. Did anybody sing that song in children's church? So, so that's the famous uh, healing of the, of the cripple. And they get thrown into prison for this. And now they're brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders the tenants of the vineyard that Jesus has just judged, they have said, you are not allowed to preach this. You are not allowed to preach in the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ. You are not allowed to speak in his name. And look at what happens in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, there's the boldness, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is what happens to Christians when they are questioned, when they are brought before councils and magistrates and whatever else they may be brought before. It is not something we're accustomed to thinking about as Americans. We're just not accustomed to thinking this way. We've had freedom of religion. We still do. We still have freedom of religion. Nobody's coming in here to tell us to quit doing what we're doing so far. But there could come a day, and it might not be in my lifetime, but it could be in my children's lifetime, where it becomes more and more difficult to meet and to gather. I don't know. I'm not predicting. What I'm saying is, what I see in these scriptures is that God judged the leaders of Israel for their rejection of the cornerstone, and I don't want you to join up with them and be on the wrong end of that parable where God is going to come and destroy the tenants of the vineyard because they rejected the chief cornerstone. Don't reject Jesus. Peter tells them right here, there's no other name that you can be saved other than through the name of Jesus Christ. And he's the one that did this miracle. We were just, we were the donkey that Jesus rode in on when we prayed for him and he was healed. And you have to see him as the chief cornerstone, builders. But you've rejected him. So the message this morning is, don't be like that. Is that simple enough? Don't reject Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus says the same exact setting. In Matthew, he says, those who fall on this stone will be crushed to pieces. But the stone, when it falls on them, smashes them. I believe what Jesus is trying to say is you need to willingly come to this cornerstone and fall and be broken into humble bits. You fall on him and say, I have no hope outside of you. Because the alternative is a judgment outside of his mercy. You don't want to be. You want to fall on the stone. You don't want the stone to fall on you. Let's all stand up. We're going to pray. I want to ask everybody just to bow your head with me if you would. If you're here this morning and you have not fallen on the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Repent of your sin. Call on His name this morning as we pray. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We believe in our heart. We confess with our mouth, Jesus, I believe you are Lord and I repent of my sin. I believe you are the only way. That is what God is looking for. If He is drawing on your heart this morning, then respond. Do not reject. Father, we thank you this morning for this day. We thank you for people watching. We thank you for everyone that's here. God, we pray that you would do your work. 
We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, blind eyes would be opened. God, we pray that we would just be amazed at the love that you have, that you came to a people that were rejecting you. You came to your own, and your own did not receive him. But as many did receive him, to them, Lord, you gave the right to be called the children of God. Lord, I pray this morning that we would see you for who you are, that we would not be in a place of rejecting you. And Lord, I pray that we would be in a place of boldly speaking about you and not afraid of the consequences. Lord, let us do that in love. Let us do that with a broken heart, seeking reconciliation, not to prove that we're right. Lord, we thank you for all of this today. In the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You are officially dismissed. There is a, well, and Ken has got, he's going to stand by the door. If you can, and Daniel, if you can fill out that survey, you can put it in the offering basket in the back. We just would love to hear what your thoughts are on Sunday school. Thank you.